So this morning, I, I already shared with you a little while ago that there's, there's a couple of things that might throw you, although those of you who have been at worship with me the last couple of times, I was here last week, you get the benefit of me twice, uh, two times in a row, or, or you'll be glad when it's all over, one or the other. Anyway, today we're, two things will be happening. So I, I will be talking a little bit about our texts and a couple of other stories, but then I'm gonna actually invite you to watch a video. That's why the screen's here. It's not just here because someone forgot to put it away. Um, <laughs> that we're gonna watch that. And then I'm gonna invite you all into a time of conversation, which I've done the last couple of times since I was here. And you all have been handling that really well. You seem to like each other. I, I'm getting that hint. So um, it doesn't seem to be too much of a problem to, to chat with each other a little bit. So we're, we're gonna do that just as a warning, all right? Just giving you the heads up. Um, will you pray with me? Good and loving God, we thank you so much for this time to spend exploring and wrestling with your word. We invite you to guide our hearts and our minds and our souls as we invite the Spirit to inspire us today with your word. We ask that the words of our mouths and indeed the meditations of each of our hearts would be pleasing to you, for you are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Elle Woods thought she had everything. The heroine of the 2001 movie Legally Blonde that later became a musical, you might have seen that, it's a big deal on Broadway, was a beautiful blonde young woman from the wealthy Bel Air neighborhood of Los Angeles. She's about to graduate from CULA um, with a 4.0 as a fashion merchandising major. She's her sorority house president and she believes that she is about to get a marriage proposal any day from her handsome and East Coast-born boyfriend, Warner. He is from a Kennedy-esque kind of family who has generations of lawyers and politicians in their family tree. Her whole life seems laid out before her. Until a romantic dinner out with her boyfriend turns into something else entirely. When they barely start their salads, Warner says he wants to talk with her. Her ears per perk up. She's expecting the, the big diamond wedding ring at any second. He tells her about his family's pressure on him to go to law school and to run for office. Then he drops a bomb. He is breaking up with her in order to find a more serious spouse who would please his politically connected family and match better with his new life at Harvard Law School after graduation. Her world turns upside down. She spends weeks grieving the loss of this relationship in bed, eating chocolate and watching soap operas, like many of us do. To say the least, she is a hot mess. So during one such depress depressing day in bed, though, she has a revelation. She just needs to become more serious in order to get Warner the love of her life back. She uh, picks herself up and her tiny chihuahua bruiser and goes to her guidance counselor and announces her intent to apply to attend Harvard Law School. This perky California girl is unaware of how daunting this goal might be. For the first time in her life, it seems she is met with skepticism at every turn. 
Her friends, her teachers, even her own parents discourage her from applying, encouraging her to do something more fitting of her, like modeling or becoming a society wife. The resistance merely strengthens her resolve, though. She buckles down, studies for the LSAT, and makes a movie-quality admissions video with the help of a Coppola, because that's what you do in California, I guess. <laughs> and guess what? After all of that hard work and months of sacrifice, she gets admitted. She packs up and heads out east only to get a rude awakening to the world of law school and east coast life. She does not easily win back Warner as she had planned, finding he is already engaged to his former prep school girlfriend, whose family is members in the country club back home. So instead of getting a husband and returning to California, she has to discover her own intelligence, her own fortitude, her own compassion for others, her own sense of self, and very unexpectedly, a passionate calling for the practice of law. Peter and John, the main characters in our story this morning, have an even more dramatic story of resistance in the, in their, on their way to claim their sense of call. Now, it's a long story, so I'm going to recap it for you as best I can. So they started out as pretty hapless disciples. You might remember in some of those earlier stories in the Gospels. They're asking Jesus about a million stupid questions, often repeatedly uh, kinds of questions. Now, Peter, who claims to love Jesus more than all the others, fearfully denies that he even knows him when Jesus is taken by the authorities just before his cruci crucifixion. And when Jesus, when Jesus returns from the dead, they don't even recognize him on the road, on the road um, until he shares a meal with them. Then, after they personally witness God assuming Jesus back to heaven after the resurrection, they choose to fearfully hide again out in an upper room until finally the Holy Spirit empowers them to preach and teach in Jesus' name. In our modern vernacular again, we might call them a hot mess. So in our story today, we find these disciples soon after the miracle of Pentecost and the descent of the Holy Spirit upon them. Now, they're a lot less of a mess, at least outwardly right now, but still suffering from the limitation, limiting expectations of the people around them, a lot like Elle Woods in that story I told you in the beginning. They are known as uneducated and ordinary people but they are also emboldened by the Holy Spirit and are brazenly preaching and teaching and healing in the name of Jesus. Not only are they ordinary, poor, and uneducated, they are troublemakers, stirring up the crowds who are eagerly listening to their teachings and begging for them to perform more healings. Now, as I mentioned in last week's sermon, we don't want to get too judgy now about the chief priests who are trying to deal with the problem of Peter and John. They are the religious authorities, after all, and they walk a very thin political line. They only have their little bit of authority because they stay on the good side of the Roman authorities who occupy Jerusalem. They know if they, or people associated with the Hebrew people, 
make too much trouble, they could quickly be walking the same walk as Jesus did to the cross. They also know the power of the crowds who are following Jesus's disciples. Jesus may be gone, but those fervent crowds are back and they can't get enough of the disciples. This kind of reminds us of the power of crowds to affect change. Like we're not unlike what we're learning is happening in our current protest culture, right? We've learned that it makes a difference to show up for women's marches, the March for Our Lives, Black Lives Matters. Groups of people assembling to fight for higher ideals have a lot of power, and the chief priests certainly know this. The disciples, empowered by this Holy Spirit, persist, and for now, avoid punishment because of that crowd's very power. But what are they gathering for? What about Jesus' message is so compelling? These are not the people in any kind of authority who are gathering. They are likely poor, women, people of the wrong race or color, the sick, the lame, tax collectors, laborers, those who have been cast out of the mainstream and told that they are not worthy because they are uneducated and ordinary, just like the disciples. What is compelling about the disciples, I think, is less about their ability to miraculously heal, though that certainly gets people's attention, but about their affirmation of the worthiness and humanity of these people. The disciples remind the crowds, perhaps for the first time in their lives, that they are worthy of love and belonging. Their worthiness is, not derived, is derived not from who they are, what they've done, or who they know, but from simply being human. They, too, are a hot mess. Still, they are beloved children of God. With that knowledge of worthiness, of acceptance in community, they too are empowered and emboldened. Though we don't know how the individual stories of people in the crowd, we might imagine that they, after experiencing this love and belonging, are wondering how they might spread this incredible love with which they have been gifted. Maybe they too wonder how they might make a difference in the world. This kind of passion and power threatens the authorities who operate by different rules, relying on Roman authorities and tradition, not necessarily God for the affirmation of their power and role. The Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams, um, she is the second black woman to become a Zen priest and the founder of the Center for Transformative Change, was recently interviewed on the NPR show On Being. People often believe, she said, that they might sit down in meditation, which is a big part of the Zen Buddhist practice, and then if they sit down and magically sit, they come into this state of peace or bliss. People imagine that. But that's not actually what happens, as it turns out. You must first confront yourself and your own hot mess before any real change, either inside yourself or change in your community and world can happen. As she notices the culture in which we find ourselves today, she recognizes a genuine desire of people to transform, not just change. 
She said, and this quote's a little long, so bear with me, but it's worth it, I promise. She says, but for us to transform as a society, we have to allow ourselves to be transformed as individuals. And for us to be transformed as individuals, we have to allow for the incompleteness of any of our truths and a real forgiveness for the complexity of human beings and what we're trapped inside of so that we're both able to respond to the oppression, the aggression that we're confronted with. But we're able to do that with a deep and abiding sense of, and there are people, human beings, that are at the other end of that baton, that stick, that policy, that are also trapped in something. They're also trapped in a suffering. And for sure, we can witness that there are ways in which they are benefiting from it, but there's also ways, if one trusts the human heart, that they must be suffering. And holding that at the core of who you are when responding to things, I think, is the way, the only way we really have forward to not just replicate systems of oppression for the sake of our own cause, she said. Both of the stories we've looked at today reflect the beginnings of what it takes to truly transform individuals and societies. In our own Christian tradition, if we rest and sit for a moment, we may realize the implications of the love God showed us in the form of our brother, our teacher, Jesus. Like Reverend Williams describes, if we rest and are still with our own messy stuff, we can have empathy for others who are grappling with that same suffering, regardless of who they are or how challenging witnessing that suffering may be. When we allow that spirit to enter us and inspire us, we will be less frightened, especially if it is more frightening to those who are around us. So now I'm going to share with you, as I prepped you for earlier, um, a favorite music video by Jana Stanfield that's called If I Were Brave, and it never ceases to inspire me. So um, if it's not the 100% best quality of video, so if you wanted to move up a little to see a little better, you're welcome to do that. But you should be able to hear um, just fine. Just give me a second while I, whoops, while I make it work. Look at that. I like it when things work. <laughs> it's not always the case. There we go. 